And I just want to say thank you to Kit and Ellie for putting this seminar series together, and I hope that it continues um, throughout the next couple of years, because I think it's a great idea. Um, so today what I'm going to talk about is some of the recent work um, I've been doing um, with Robin and with Kit and with, with other people, um, addressing some of the sort of fundamental questions about primate social evolution. Um, and just to tell you sort of the structure of the talk, I'm going to start by uh, going over some recent work we've done on uh, patterns of brain evolution in mammals um, and trying to see whether you can document macroevolutionary patterns in, in uh, mammalian brain evolution. And then the second part of the talk is going to be sort of a, a switch of gears and to talk about something totally different. And, and this is going to focus on modeling behavioral evolution in primates and other animals. And the idea here is using sort of statistical techniques to try and test theoretical models that have been around in the literature for a long time. Um, and we've done, Robin and I have previously done some work with birds and other mammals, and then I'm going to go over some recent work on primates. Um, and there is kind of a theme to the, to the two sections, and that's um, using sort of modern techniques to challenge and test some of the conventional assumptions that have been made in sort of primatology and in the wider field of behavioral ecology. Okay, so to start with, um, the, I'm going to talk a little bit about a recent paper we, we did on um, patterns of brain evolution in mammals. And, uh, and the, the fundamental question is, can you actually compare brains across widely divergent taxa? So if you have, say, for example, a whale on one hand and a mouse on the other hand, we know um, that a whale's brain is much, much larger than a mouse's brain, but does that tell you anything about sort of, the cognitive ability or the evolutionary um, structuring or selection pressures operating on, on brain um, evolution? And there's been, um, throughout the literature, there's been a number of, of, of attempts at trying to rank species across broad groups, so coming up with some kind of um, holistic approach to quantifying um, species in terms of their total brain size um, or relative brain size. But as, as I just said, this can be very problematic um, if you have animals that vary widely in, in size. And the reason is, is that you have this relationship between body size and brain size. And so as body size increases over all taxa, brain size also increases. And this is known as, as allometric scaling, that there's brain, is, brain size is associated with body size. And there's a number of reasons why this probably happens in addition to um, just simple developmental things. But as you, as you develop a larger body, then you can make the argument that you should need a larger brain to, coordin um, to, to fulfill basic metabolic and physiological functions. So if we take, apart, or take, take away all the kind of cognitive, cognitive aspects of a large brain, a large bodied animal probably needs a large brain in order to control um, movement in order to maintain homeostasis, in order to do with metabolic needs. So if you compare a whale and a mouse, you're, you're not necessarily comparing like with like. Um, so there have been a number of attempts to try and, and circumvent this problem by coming up with relative measures. Um, and one of the commonly used ones is the encephalization quotient that Jerison introduced in the 1970s. What he was trying to do is come up with some sort of standardized measure across um, a wide group of species so that you could rank them, essentially. Um, and encephalization quotients, I, I don't have a pointer, so I'm going to sort of flail my arms around a bit. Um, encephalization quotient is, is one that he came up with. There's a, here's the, the formula. But if you calculate encephalization quotient over mam mammals, 
humans nicely come out on top, so that means this is a very good one because that's where we expect to be. Um, and you can then rank animals across um, a wide taxa, uh, taxonomic spread for how large encephalization quotient are. Similarly, people have used things like residuals, which is trying to look at relative brain size, controlling for body size. Or you can do things like looking at neocortex or forebrain ratio versus the rest of the brain. Um, and here's just an example across two orders. We have brain size increasing on the x-axis. And as you can see, the relative proportion of the neocortex increases as total brain size increases. And this might be an interesting measure because we know this is where executive functioning occurs, is in the, the neocortex or forebrain. Um, and skills like learning, memory, association, and spatial problem solving are all uh, found in, in sort of the, the frontal area of the brain. But then there's, there's the underlying question is, is it, actually the, is, is it actually valid to try and rank species? When we know that there's issues about scaling over different groups, we know that different taxa have different constraints operating on them. For example, if you want to compare bats with something like whales or dolphins, bats have very, very strong um, constraints on their morphology because they fly. So they have to actually try and, and pack as much into a very small space as possible so that they don't interfere with you know, sort of their physiological or their um, aerodynamic structuring. Whereas if you look at something like a dolphin, a dolphin lives in an environment where, there's, where gravity is less of a problem, and there's potentially not as many um, sort of constraints on how large that brain can get. So we, it, it may not even make sense at the base to try and compare across wide groups of species. This doesn't mean that we haven't tried to do this. Um, and one of the things that's been so commonly cited in the literature is that there has been a trend towards increasing brain size over evolutionary time. So if you look at old groups of, of animals, they tend to have small brains. Modern groups of animals of any kind tend to have larger brains than their fossil ancestors. And again, this goes back to Jerison um, in, in his 1973 book. He very nicely put together some data, data from fossil um, crania and extant species to show that there's been this trend towards increasing brain size. So here we have ungulates and carnivores, and each one of these distributions corresponds to the distribution of brain sizes for um, animals at different periods of time. So we have archaic carnivores, paleogene carnivores, neogene carnivores, and recent carnivores. And the take-home message that he was trying to make with this graph is that if you go from the old to the recent, that mean has been shifting right or shifting up towards larger and larger brains. However, if you look at those distributions, there's something else that you notice, and that's that the variation is increasing over time. So it's not just that the mean is shifting up. It actually looks like you're just essentially pulling the right-hand um, side of this distribution over. So the question is, is this actually documenting an increase in t over time, or is this actually documenting an increase in variance, which would just be random drift and, and no evidence for selection for larger brains? Um, and a recent paper by Finarelli and Finn tried to re-address this problem by actually looking at allometric slopes themselves, the relationship between body size and brain size. And they make the argument that if you look at how allometric slopes vary, that might tell you something about evolutionary trends. So you can have either the, sh the slope of the line shift up, which means that large-bodied animals on this line have relatively larger brains than large-bodied animals on that line. 
So that tells you something about potentially a difference in um, selection pressures uh, across those two groups. Conversely, you might see that you have the entire line shifting up. So that in this second taxa, the, um, for a given body size, brains are larger in this group than in that group. Um, so, they, so they looked at, across carnivores to try and see whether the nature of these allometries is, um, varies across groups, firstly, and secondly, whether the, the allometries are associated with sociality. Um, and it actually has been pointed out previously that this is potentially a problematic approach. But anyway, so, so this is what they tried to do, and they found that there was no support for the social brain hypothesis. Therefore, um, Robin Dunbar's wrong is essentially what they say. <laughs> um, but, but I think you need to bear in mind that, that it's widely recognized that there's issues with their, this entire approach. So what we did is we went back into the literature and said, well, let's look across a wide group of animals, so expand the, the study, um, and see whether we can actually document trends in brain size changes, rather than documenting allometric relationships, actually looking to see whether we can document evolutionary trends. So we collected brain size data for 511 extant and fossil species across six orders. Um, and what we did is regressed brain size against time controlling for body size. So we're essentially coming up with a relative measure of brain size within a group over time. So for example, has brain size increased over time in primates or has brain size increased over time in cetaceans? And this, the, the slope of this relationship, so you have time on this axis and relative brain size on that axis, the steepness of that slope was our estimate of um, encephalization. And then again, we tried to relate this to the social brain hypothesis. And, the, and there are a number of interesting results. Um, firstly, encephalization is not universal in mammals. So any of these where you have the, the asterisks above the bars, those are where you have significant positive um, evidence for, uh, or a significant positive slope for brain size increase. And you can see most of the orders have evi or show evidence for, for brain size increase, except for artiodactyl, so this is deer and other ruminants and insectivores. So we can't actually say that there's any temporal trend in these groups of animals. Um, the, the bars above actually show pairwise significant differences. And as you can see, primates have the steepest slope, followed by cetaceans, followed by prosodactyls, which are horses, um, and rhinos, and tapirs. And then we also did it at the suborder level. And again, at the suborder level, you have most taxa show evidence of encephalization or increase over t in brain size increase over time, but not all. So we have cats don't, the deer don't, and rhinos don't. So when we look at this prosodactyl um, relationship, actually it's mostly driven by horses. So horses show strong evidence of brain size increase over time, whereas the rhinos don't. And interestingly, if you look at the, the steepness of the slope, anthropoid primates have the strongest evidence for encephalization, followed by camels, which is interesting, and then prosimians and horses, and um, that's rhinos. So then the, the next question is, do these slopes have anything to do with sociality? And the way we approach this question is we went through all of the orders, so the 511 species that we had, and classed each species as either being solitary, 
um, occurring in facultative social groups or occurring in stable social groups. And then we related the proportion of taxa that are in social groups to the encephalization slopes. So if that doesn't make sense, hopefully this will help. So this is at the order level. Um, here's the encephalization slope. So if we go back to here, this is basically this measure here. So these are the mean encephalization slopes. And if we go here, then what we see is as the encephalization slope increases, there is a tendency for more taxa to be social than um, not social. And at the order level, it's highly significant. And if you break it down into the suborder level, again, this has slightly more data points, and it's a little bit messier. But again, it's a very significant relationship. So I think this is sort of trying to take the same, answer the same question that Finarelli and Finn had, had asked, but using an actually explicitly evolutionary approach. And what we find is, A, that we have variation across groups, and B, um, that there is support for the social brain. Um, we also show that encephalization, the encephalization trend is not universal in mammals. Um, but one thing that this doesn't tell us is, is what those cognitive demands are or what the pressures have been that have caused the increase in brain size over time. So that we can say sociality appears to be associated with brain size increases over time. We don't actually know what the cognitive um, responses are. So this is, again, a very correlative, correlative in nature. Okay, so now I'm going to shift to talk about uh, modeling primate behavioral evolution. Uh, and just to give you a quick background, um, one of the things that's commonly used in behavioral ecology is the comparative method. And the idea is that related species are more likely to be similar based on shared ancestry than distantly related species. And if we want to relate a species characteristic to their behavior, to their ecology, um, we need to control for this non-independence. So that if we have, say, 10 macaque species and we're comparing um, social group size with an environmental variable and we have one species that's a non-macaque, then you could very easily be basically showing what macaques are doing rather than showing any sort of uh, adaptive response. Um, and the comparative method is, is generally used to try and remove the effect of history. So in most cases, what you're trying to do is say, I want to know whether a behavior is related to an environmental variable or whether one behavior is related to another variable. And what I want to do is I want to take out the non-independence. I, I want to try and remove any biases I have in my data set. But actually, one thing that, what, that might be happening is that you are explicitly ignoring historical processes. So actually, one thing that might be interesting is, do all macaque species have very similar behaviors? And do macaque species tend to be much more similar because of historical processes than any other group of, of primates? And so actually, we may be ignoring a lot of information by trying to, to test the ad adaptive um, relationship between behavior and environment, we actually might be ignoring some of the interesting aspects of, of how evolution proceeds. Um, and some of the things that you can do by actually looking at historical processes are things like reconstructing ancestral traits. So if we want, for example, to say, what did the ancestral macaque look like, or what did they behave like? If all modern macaques are doing very, very similar things, then we can say the likelihood is that an ancestral macaque is also doing something very similar to what modern macaques are doing. 
rather than saying that every macaque is independently changed from what the ancestral trait was. Uh, we can also identify evolutionary pathways. So we can say, is there a sequence of events um, that, that it has to be sort of tra um, traversed to get to modern um, character states? And, um, and then the, the, the other question is, actually, do behaviors evolve in the same way that morphology evolves or physiology evolves or life history evolves? So we you know, have made the, it sort of assumed that morphology and physiology are constrained by evolutionary processes, whereas the sort of adaptive approach to behavior has taken more of the approach that behaviors are flexible and that behaviors may be much more labile and not as subject to historical processes as as sort of morphology, or morphological or physiological traits. Um, and so the way we go about trying to, to look at some of these historical processes are by mapping traits onto known trees. And, um, and then you can actually look at the likelihood of ancestral states or of state changes over time using either sort of a maximum likelihood approach or a parsimony approach. But some of the recent, um, some recent work, um, mostly, mostly advocated by by Mark Pagel's taking more of a Bayesian approach. So we know that there's a lot of uncertainty in both the data, the types of data we're using and in the phylogenies we're using. So there's actually been this sort of recent advance where we have a lot more power in how we can uh, apply these statistical models. So what kinds of behaviors am I talking about? Um, if we're talking about primates, then we can look at things like, like strata use or habitat use. So where in the environment are these animals found? Things like dispersal characteristics, do they tend to stay in their natal area or do they tend to leave and go to new areas? What are their activity patterns? Are they solitary? Are they, no, are they uh, nocturnal? Are they diurnal? And what kind of social grouping patterns do we find these animals in? And, what, and what, what we're going to do is use these behavioral traits to answer a number of questions. As I mentioned before, things like identifying evolutionary pathways, identifying whether there are historical signals in the data, whether behavior um, acts evolutionarily in a similar way to morphology or physiology, whether we can reconstruct ancestral states. And finally, I think the most interesting thing is, can we test some of the theoretical models that, um, that, that have been presented about how social um, sociality evolves? So the data we used are 230 species of primates. We used um, downloaded phylogenetic trees from the online database. Uh, and one of the problems that we have is, is how you capture variability in, in classifying these species. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Okay, so why are these, why do I think these behaviors in particular are interesting? Dispersal, I think, is actually very interesting for a number of reasons. And one is that the ancestral mammalian state has been proposed in numerous times to be female phylopatry. So that means that females stay where they were born. Um, and males tend to leave and, and move into new areas. And the reason that this might be uh, interesting to look at is because, firstly, um, this has been assumed to be the female or the, the ancestral primate pattern. This might be how you get to female bonded groups, is that if females are staying where they're born, then you can get an easy shift into female bonding. Um, and that, that the extension of mother-daughter relationships may be fundamental to primate sociality. Um, the other reason that dispersal is potentially very interesting is that it's been proposed widely across the literature that, that one of the easiest ways to evolve cooperation 
is to have population viscosity. And what that means is basically that you have individuals that tend to stay in the same area so that if you're going to have cooperative interactions, um, if you have repeated interactions with the same individuals, then it's a lot easier for cooperation to evolve. Secondly, if you have things operating like kin selection, then kin selection operates where you have kin remaining in the same area. So that if you want to look at primate sociality, if you get switches so that you have one sex staying, then you have this population viscosity that might allow you to evolve things like um, cooperative behaviors. Uh, there have been a number of things proposed about what affects dispersal patterns, and the, the basic, basically the two hypotheses are risk on one hand, because dispersal is risky, and resource distribution on the other hand. So I'm going to skip that. Um, and then social systems, the reason, reason that social systems is potentially very interesting is um, that the way most primate behavior has been explained is via the socio-ecological model. And the idea here is that individuals tend to be very flexible in how they respond to resource distribution. And if you change the distribution of resources or the, um, uh, how um, important things like predation pressure are, then you can get responses in individuals in terms of their aggregation patterns. And this, uh, the socio-ecological model was originally proposed not for primates, but for mammals in general, um, by, by Jarman saying that patterns of aggregations vary in response to resource distribution. But this sort of framework has been fundamental for understanding primate behavioral evolution. So um, people like Stirk and Rangham in 1980 have all said the socio-ecological model explains why primates are distributed in the way that they are distributed. And the inference from the socio-ecological model is that there's flexibility, that there's a lot of flexibility in the system. If you change the resources, if you change the predation pressure, you change the social system. Um, and this is sort of the prevailing approach to understanding primate grouping patterns, although it has been pointed out that history is very important in driving these processes. So we shouldn't ignore the role of historical effects so that macaques might be more similar to other macaques, regardless of what environment they're in. Um, and then the other, the other reason social systems is, I find potentially interesting is that if you want to look at models of social evolution, then we may be able to test questions about how sociality has evolved in primates um, from sort of a first principles approach. And, there's, and you can make this sort of like a in, in, in step, stepwise inference, but things like the social brain hypothesis, which posits that um, brains have evolved in response to the cognitive impact um, demands imposed by sociality, the assumption or the, the inference can be that uh, increasing brain size has released constraints on, on group size. So over time, as your brain gets bigger, you can live in a bigger group. And that means that we would expect sort of social grouping patterns to increase in a stepwise fashion. So you start as a solitary individual, then you go to a very simple social structure, slightly more complex social structure, and then eventually in large um, complex groups. And so that we should see that you have these increasing, so this increasing um, ratchet effect on, on uh, social complexity. Okay. So now some more sort of statistical um, background. Um, how do we go about testing these historical patterns? One of the ways that we can test whether there's historical patterns in data is looking at phylogenetic inertia. So this is basically saying if you are, say, solitary at time A, are you likely to be solitary at time B and at time C? 
or if, you, if there's very little inertia, then you can potentially switch between like a solitary state and a social state and back and forth very easily. If there's a lot of inertia, whatever your state you start in, you're more likely to remain in that state. Um, and uh, there's been actually a, sort of an ongoing dispute in the literature about the relative merits of an adaptationist approach versus a constraint approach to evolutionary processes. Um, and in the Spandrel to San Marco in 1979, Gould and the Wanton made the point that we should be very careful about applying adaptationist arguments to every trait that we see in extant species. And the reason is, is that history and constraint have really important roles in determining the, the kinds of traits um, that we see uh, in species today. And just for any of, you that, any of you that aren't familiar with the arguments about the, the spandrels, this is an example of a spandrel in a, an Italian church. And what a spandrel is, it's where two arches come down. And where those arches meet, you tend to have a, a bit of a flat area, um, which is sort of this area here. And if you go into you know, sort of a, a, Italian churches, what you often see is that this area is used for putting you know, sort of small portraits or paintings in. And their argument is that if you go into a church like this and you see paintings on a spandrel, it would be ludicrous to make the argument that, to say that this church has been built in this way so that we have a spandrel that we can paint on. What you would say instead is that you build a church with these arches because that's architecturally robust. The byproduct of the architectural structure is that you have a spandrel. And on that spandrel, you can use that space to um, put some sort of detailing or um, you know, designs on. And Golden and Wanton said, if you, went, if you made the argument about a spandrel being the fundamental purpose for a church being built in the way that it's built, that would, be, that would be ridiculous. But we also should bear that in mind when we're looking at biological traits. So for example, if we look at feathers on a male bird that are very bright and elaborate, it would be, it would be counterintuitive to make the argument that feathers have evolved so that males can use them to display. We'd say actually feathers probably have a, a more um, fundamental role in, in, or, or a function in terms of flight or thermoregulation. Once we have feathers, then we can co-opt them for things like display. So that my whole point about making the, that bringing up this argument is that only by understanding historical processes can we understand why birds have feathers, what, feathers, what function feathers serve, and how feathers have potentially been co uh, um, uh, adopted for secondary purposes. And if we look at behavior, we may see that you have similar things. And if we ignore history, then we can fall into the adaptationist um, fallacy. OK, so if we want to look then at historical processes, the argument has been made in the literature that like, Bloomberg et al. in 2003 wrote a nice paper saying that behavior operates in a fundamentally different way than, than physiology or morphology. Morphology and physiology are very hard to change genetically. So if you um, have one trait, you're more likely to retain that trait, whereas behavior should be more labile and less prone to um, historical effects. Um, but actually, this is one of the few examples where they've tried to test whether this is true. And actually, there's very few examples in the literature of people saying, how important is history in determining the, de in determining the spread of traits? One very good um, exception is De Fiori and Rendell, um, where they evaluate evidence for phy phylogenetic signal and primate behavior traits, but it's using kind of an old methodology. 
and they make the point that old world primates tend to have very conserved behavioral traits. And therefore, we actually should consider the role of history in, in primate behavior. So one way that you can test for this historical signature is using something called Pagel's lambda. And this basically is a quantitative measure of how strong that inertia is in traits. Um, and you can estimate, uh, the, um, estimate the optimal lambda using a number of, of statistical packages. But what you should bear in mind is that a lambda of 1 means that the relationship of traits to the tree is proportional to the relatedness between species. So that if you have two very closely related species, they tend to have very, very similar traits. As you move further away on, that, on those phylogenies, the traits become more and more dissimilar. A lambda of zero means that the distribution of traits in extant species is not associated with how related pairs of species are. And what you can do is you can uh, estimate lambda and then compare it with the two the two sort of default arguments that either history is very important or history is not important. And if we look at primate behavior, what you find is that the, op the uh, estimated lambda is 0.98, which one means that history is incredibly important, and so we're actually very, very close to one. And so what this implies is that history is, is extremely important in understanding the distribution of primate behavior. Um, and this model fits... Um, a lambda of one, and it's very different than a lambda of zero. If you look at dispersal, again, you have very strong evidence for historical effects in dispersal traits across primates. And even things like strata use, so this is whether species are arboreal, terrestrial, again, you have very strong evidence for history being important in these traits. And it, it's, if you think about um, anatomy, that's not surprising, because if you're built to live in the trees, you'll live in the trees. And it's very unlikely that if you have a morphology that uh, means that you're adapted to live in the trees, that, that a species is going to decide to be terrestrial. So you can understand how history works in some of these er in some of these aspects. And other ones where we it's a bit surprising that there's such a strong historical effect. But if you start thinking about it, then the social system is made up of a bunch of different of, of suites of traits that determine your social system. So it's where you live, when you're active, what you eat. And all those things are potentially very constrained by history. So actually, social system may be less labile than we tend to think of it as being. And actually, this is just to show you um, an example. I'm not expecting you to, to uh, read across the tree. But this is a, just showing you the distribution of social systems across primates. And you can see where this strong lambda comes from. So if you see uh, all the circles marked blue uh, across, these are the, the species traits, you can see how clumped solitary species are on the tree. And if you look at red, which are multi-male, multi-female groups, then, uh, then again, you can see that in extant species, they're very clumped. They're not evenly distributed across the tree. Again, yellow are pair-bonded or family groups. Again, they're very clumped. And green are harem living species. Again, very clumped. So if you look at this primate tree, you can see why you have this strong evidence for historical effects. But one of, the, one of the nice things is once we know this, then you can actually say, if there is this clumping in extant species, then we should be able to reconstruct ancestral states quite easily. Um, if we go back in time, so if all modern uh, Cercopithecines have the same social system, the ancestral Cercopithecine should also have the same, uh, is more likely to have the same social system as as um, 
the extant species. So this is just an example of how we may use this approach to reconstruct fossil behavior. Um, and at each one of these pies is the probability of the ancestral node having one social system over the other. So if you look at ancestral circopithecines, then there is a very high probability that that um, node will have multi-male, multi-female um, organization. Again, if you look at ancestral uh, prosimians um, and the, the, the primate root, then there's actually an almost probability of one. There's actually, for, for both of those nodes, a probability of one that the ancestral node was solitary. Um, and then this is dispersal, just to show you the same thing, that if you look at the distribution of dispersal patterns across primates, again, it's not random. It's very clumped in nature. So history is obviously very, very important in determining dispersal behavior in primates. I'm just going to leave that there. So the, the next thing to say is, how can we use this information to do something interesting with it? It's fine that I can say, oh, there's hist historical effects in social systems. That by itself isn't necessarily that interesting. But I think there is something interesting when you start saying, well, how do these stepwise changes occur? And what kind of um, sequence do, do changes across the phylogeny happen? And then we can potentially test models of social evolution. So here are three potentially conflicting models of social evolution. One is that social evolution follows uh, a pattern of increasing complexity. So if you start at a solitary state, then the most likely change that you're going to get is into pair living. And then from pair living, you can increase, you can either decrease and go back to solitary, or you can increase in complexity and go to sort of one male, multi-female groups. And from there into large, complex social groups. Um, the other, an, another potential way to for, um, construct a model from the literature is, is the flexible model which says if the socio-ecological model is true, then you should be able to go from one state to any other state depending on your environmental conditions. And there shouldn't be any constraint operating on um, which state you can be in. And from, if you're in one state, you should be able to move into any other state from, from there. And this is con contrasted with actually what the model, the, the data say. So this is our best fit model. Um, and basically what the best fit model says is that you go from solitary, you only have really one option, and that is to go to multi-male, multi-female groups. Once you're here, then you can either go into harem groups or into pair-living groups. And there's this uh, weak signature for a reversal from pair-living back to multi-male. And you might ask the question, well, how do you come up with that model? And so this is, this is our flexible model where you can get changes between any states. And what you do is you run the model using a, a Bayesian framework. So you run millions of iterations of different alternative models. And then you see which ones uh, are, what rates are coming up most commonly between any two given states. And this is what the data look like. So if you look at the models, the, the, the model choices between solitary and pair living, almost all of the runs end with a rate of zero. And same if you want to look at the reversal, almost all runs um, have a rate of zero between that transition. If you look at solitary to multi-male, you can see that quite a few are at zero. So the most likely thing is that you don't change, but there is some evidence for um, some change between solitary, multi-male, multi-female. You can see here that the rates, the, the, the modal rates are non-zero between these two conditions and between multi-male, multi-female to pair-living, it's non-zero. But all the other ones tend to be zero for most runs. And that's how you end up with this rate. So these are all the non-zero rates from those models 
model runs. Okay. So then the question is, does that model actually fit the data better than our alternative theoretical models? And we can basically compute our median likelihoods across all the, the different models we're running and say whether there's support for one model over the other models. And if you want to look at the likelihoods, the higher the likelihood, the better the model fits. So the, the, best, the highest likelihood by far is associated with our, our best fit model, followed by the full rates or uh, the full model, which is basically finding the, the best rate for each transition. Then the equal rates model and the increasing complexity model actually performs worst of all of them. Um, and then you can compare model fit by using either information criterion or Bayes factor. And just to give you an idea of what these Bayes factors mean, is if there's a difference between these models of zero and one or a Bayes factor between zero and one, you have minimal support for one model over the other. One to two, you have strong support and anything over two, you have de decisive support. So this is a Bayes factor comparing the best model against these other alternative models. You can see there's very decisive support for that best model over the other alternatives. So I think that says, well, actually, maybe we need to rethink how social evolution proceeds in primates, and that some of those theoretical models don't actually seem to be supported very well. And if this is our best model, then maybe we need to look at the reasons why we might have these sort of transitions. Um, this is just to sort of, I probably should have waited for a question to see whether you guys are interested, but this is to show that although we can classify species in a number of different ways, so things like nocturnal prosimians, you can either call them solitary, or you can say in some cases we know they're multi-multi-male, multi-female dispersed structures, or sometimes they nest in um, female matrilineal groups. Regardless of how you classify all these species that have variable patterns, you can see that the rates um, tend to be very similar. So I, I don't want to go into a huge amount of detail here, but basically this is, this is a rate of zero, and the black is a, is a rate of non-zero. And if you can see across all three of the classification schemes, you tend to have a lot of consistency in how the models perform. So the rate between, these are, this is the rate between multi-multi-female and harem, you can see all models and all classification schemes are choosing a non-zero rate. Or here it's between harems back to multi-male, multi-female, and again, all models are choosing a non-zero rate. So there's a, there's a high level of consistency across the different um, classification schemes and across the models. So what, what are the implications of this? Um, I think that there's a number of implications. One is that, that we can find this regularity in pathways, that there is consistency across the models and consistency across sort of classification schemes indicate that there may be much more limited flexibility than we commonly think um, in terms of primate behavioral flexibility. Um, and I think it might, might mean that we need to think about how we apply socioecological model. And the socioecological model is probably fine for looking at variation between populations within species. So if we want to compare a baboon in a rich environment with a baboon in a poor environment, variation in group size probably reflects those environmental differences. But if we want to compare, a, say, a marmoset in the new world with a baboon in the old world, we actually probably can't explain all those differences by environmental differences. The, the, the historical differences between those two sets of species is very important. Um, and I, I think there's the, the dispersal. Um, actually, I, I've actually taken that out. 
But if we look at ancestral states and dispersal, there's very strong evidence that the ancestral state for, for primates is bisexual. So the questions about whether female thylopatry is somehow fundamental to primate evolution, there doesn't seem to be support for. And this doesn't imply that these behavioral traits are genetically determined. I think what it implies is that um, there are suites of traits that are operating to impose constraints. And it's not that we have a behavior, that we have a gene for multi-male, multi-female social organization, or that we have a gene for solitary social or, or lack of social organization. It's that we actually, there's, there's suites of characters that are highly constrained, and this leads to behavior being less flexible than we think about it being. Actually, I'm going to run out of time again. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is that you can actually use these models to look at correlation between um, sets of traits. So I keep saying these suites of traits might be important. And actually, you can explicitly look at this by um, seeing whether uh, a set of traits is, is coupled over evolutionary time. And Robin and I did a, wrote a paper several years ago where we were trying to test a social brain hypothesis to say whether large brains are correlated over evolutionary time with sociality. And what we found is that in ungulates, carnivores, and primates, these two traits seem to be correlated over time, but the signature is strongest in primates. So this suggests that, oh, that the sociality in large brains are coupled over time, um, and that this may indicate that brain evolution is um, highly associated with, with sociality. And we also use this approach to look at um, brain evolution in birds. And basically, we look for correlated evolution between traits that are associated with, parabond uh, with large brains in birds. Um, and, and one of the things that's been posited is that uh, parabonding and biparental care is instrumental for the evolution of large brains. Um, and this is because it allows you to have altricial young. Um, large, brain, large, large brain species tend to have uh, delayed development times. And so if you can actually have biparental care, you can extend the development time, and therefore you can get large brains, um, the, the development of large brains. So we actually looked in to see whether these whether suites of traits are correlated. And what we found is that development is highly correlated with brain size. Biparental care is also correlated with brain size. Um, development was correlated with uh, biparental care. And actually, one of the interesting things is this biparental care is, is associated with parabonding. So that parabonding is probably instrumental to the whole sequence of, of evolution of large brains in birds. And actually, this is sort of a schematic representation of it. But if you want to look at sort of how these suites might evolve in, in tandem, what you see is that if you, if you get the development of, of long-term parabons, this facilitates biparental care. This changes your developmental strategy so you can extend development, which means that you can end up with large-brained large animals. So if we were just trying to explain large-brained animals based on behavior, you're potentially ignoring the evolutionary sequence that allows you to get there in the first place, which is more complex than just the cognitive um, benefits of having a large brain. So uh, just very quickly, what I've been trying to do recently is, is apply the same approach to looking at correlated evolution in primates and testing some of the fundamental um, hypotheses about social evolution. And one of these is, is soci social evolution associated with the change from a nocturnal to a diurnal life um, style. And the second one is, is predation risk a major driver for the evolution of sociality? And this is just kind of the same scheme where what we're assuming is that you go from if 
activity is important. You go from a solitary nocturnal lifestyle to a social diurnal lifestyle. If predation is important in driving sociality, you go from a solitary low-risk lifestyle to a social high-risk lifestyle. And this is, I'm just going to give you a quick um, rundown of some of the other things that I was trying to understand is the evolution of dispersal patterns. So we have a number of things that may be associated with dispersal, such as predation risk. So if you're in a high predation risk area, then um, dispersal cost may be higher. If you live, have a terrestrial lifestyle, that uh, being terrestrial is associated with higher predation rates. So that might change your dispersal patterns. Diet has been suggested to be important um, as resource defensibili defensibility is key, has been thought to be key for female phylopatry. So we might see things like uh, frugivory associated with um, dispersal. And then this, this is back to the same question about female phylopatry. Is female phylopatry fundamental to the evolution of sociality? Uh, and territoriality is another argument. You might say that if you are communally defending a, a territory, it may pay to be phylopatric to defend with your kin. So is there evidence for any of these uh, traits being correlated? And what, what we find is that there is strong evidence for dispersal patterns being associated with predation risk. Dispersal patterns is weakly associated with diet, so being um, frugivorous. And there's strong evidence for um, sociality and activity being correlated over evolutionary time. But there's no evidence for dispersal being associated with territoriality or with uh, strata use um, or sociality being associated particularly with predation um, or um, sociality being associated with dispersal. So what are the conclusions that we can draw? Uh, from the first part of the talk, that I think we were able to show that there's an evolutionary trend for increasing brain size. It's not universal, but it is associated with sociality. Um, also, I think we, we have been able to show that primate social evolution may be highly constrained to specific pathways, and that we may need to think about how appropriate the socio-ecological model is um, at, when we're talking about different levels of analyses. And that I think one of the things, one of the most important things this approach tells you is that we need to understand the relationship and interaction between suites of traits if we want to understand why primates behave the way they do and why they may be constrained to doing certain kinds of behaviors or being in certain social, social um, systems or, or social grouping patterns. And I think that's, that's it. So finally, I just want to thank um, the Royal Society for funding me um, and some of the collaborators are Quentin, Robin, and Kit. So thank you.